Hello, and welcome to Business Talk, brought to you by Business West and sponsored by People's Bank. Hi, I'm Chris Kellogg from the Kellogg Crew Morning Show on 94.7 WMAS. And I'd like to introduce the host of this week's episode. He's the editor of Business West. Here's Joe Bednar. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Business Talk. We have a great show for you today. But first, we have this important message from our sponsor, People's Bank. Thank you for listening to the Business Talk podcast, sponsored by People's Bank, bringing you the best in business experts, entrepreneurs, and evangelists. Make Business Talk your innovation break for ideas and inspiration. People's Bank, where commercial banking can fuel your growth and make work life easier. Member FDIC, DIF equal housing lender. Bank at peoples.com slash business. Hey, we're back. And as promised, we have a great show for you today. Our guest is Dr. Mark Kenton, Chief of Emergency Medicine at Mercy Medical Center in Springfield. Uh, Happy to have you here on Business Talk. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Uh, Dr. Kenton, um, Business West's annual Healthcare Heroes event is coming up on October 26th, and I will have the honor of introducing nine really impressive individuals to the stage this year, including you. So congratulations on being selected to the class of 2023. Thank you so much. It it honestly was a shock to me. Um, You know, I didn't know I was being nominated, and then uh, finding out that I actually was uh, receiving this was really just an honor. Um, You know, it it was pretty shocking. We appreciated your story and, and the work you've done, uh, both in the ER and, and in the community and, and beyond it. Um, Chief of Emergency Medicine sounds like a broad description and a busy job. <laughs> I would ask what your typical day is like, although I suspect you probably don't have a typical day. Um, but what are your roles at Mercy specifically? Yeah, so, yeah, you never really do have a typical day. I I took over as chief um, two months before the pandemic came, so nothing was typical at that point in time. Mm. Um you know, and and not only I had been at Mercy for almost 17 years then, so you know I knew the system really well. But still, there's a lot of things to learn when you when you take on that role, and then have a pandemic thrown at you at the same time. So um, now that we're through the pandemic, you know, m- most of my day, at least three days a week, involves admin, whether they're meetings and kind of looking at patient satisfaction throughput through the emergency department. You know how to make um, uh, a better environment for for patients, um, and just the overall better experience. You know, we don't like having patients wait for a long time. If you know, but there's multiple factors that go behind that. That you know, right now the system, you know, from the standpoint of post COVID, is is struggling a little bit everywhere. Um, and I also do one day of clinical per week as well, which I think is important. That when you get into a leadership role, that you still have a clinical component, so that you you know what you're physicians and other providers and nurses are all going through. Um, if you don't do any clinical, you kind of lose that that firsthand touch. Um, so I think it's an important component to have. In your 17 years um, um, at Mercy, before you took the role as chief, what, 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 were, what was your job? Um, like, Was it still in emergency medicine all those years? Or yeah, it, I was uh, board certified emergency medicine. I, I graduated or finished my residency from Bay State in 2003. And Mercy was my first job out. Um, we, we had a private group for many years, um, and then we became employed by Trinity, um, in 2019. And that's when I took over the role as chief, but yeah, so I've been, you know, in the emergency department for, you know, my entire career for 20 years now, 20 plus years, um, which definitely has, you know, been interesting and you've seen a lot of changes in medicine and healthcare in that time frame, And, and, you know, um, you know, every day is different which is why most of us go into that field. 
for your uh, recent profile article for Healthcare Heroes, um, which our listeners can read at businesswest.com, um, you said you initially wanted to be an athletic trainer. Um, what, uh, what was the initial thought then and what drew you to medical school? And, and, and then when did your specific interest in emergency medicine develop? Well, you know, I, I have a passion for baseball. I love the game. I love the, the history of the game. Um, my mother started taking me to Cooperstown in 1981 for my first Hall of Fame induction. And then I have only missed three years since then. Two were for medical school and one was the birth of my oldest son, which was kind of funny because my mother always said I would have a child on Hall of Fame weekend. <laughs> and I actually <laughs> did. So, um, but I had a passion for baseball, but, you know, I kind of realized early on that, you know, it wasn't something that where I could make, you know, a professional level. And I thought athletic training was a way to kind of get into the game, you know, to break into um, a minor league system and, and work your way up. But, you know, I kind of realized also early on that it's, that's a very challenging and difficult road as well, working your way through the minor leagues and the number of hours that you have to put in and, and the different responsibilities. And then even when you do make it up, to the pro level, there's not necessarily job security. You could have a new owner that comes in or new manager and they bring in their own team. So my freshman year in, in uh, uh, undergrad at Springfield College, I had to take an EMT course um, as well. And part of it was doing shadowing in the emergency department at Bay State. And I can tell you from that first time that I, I walked into that department, I, I knew like this is this is for me. Um, so to prove it, I became an EMT intermediate and I worked for um, a long time ago, a Commonwealth ambulance in, in Springfield for about two years um, while I was an undergrad um, and really not not to make money because we definitely didn't make a lot of money doing it. But um, just to get experience with, with patients and try to, you know, really confirm that this was this was the road I wanted to take. But I also didn't want to give up athletic training either. I I, I wanted to finish you know, my degree with that and, and get, because you do have a hands-on experience with patients with that. So I finished a four-year degree with that. And then I did a two-year master's with exercise physiology, um, which really helped strengthen my application for medical school um, to then get in. So, um, you know, that was the path that I took. You know, when you said you, um, you know, kind of experienced the, um, um, the emergency medicine world that you, you were drawn to, what, what, what was it specifically about the, was it, was it the pace, the challenge, the um, kind of, um, yeah, what was that like? I think it was a lot, it was a combination of everything. It was the pace. It was the, you know, that, that not knowing what's coming next is, is a little bit frightening, but it's also, um, you know, it keeps you moving. It keeps you on your toes that you, you really truly never get bored. And I think most of us that go into this field actually have a little bit of a, a attention deficit where, where, you know, we kind of, um, you know, we, we like to multitask and, but, but go on to that next project and, and, and take it on. So, um, you know, I think that's a big part of it. And I was very fortunate at the time that the, some of the people that I, I was surrounded by were really became, um, instrumental and, and I idolized. I mean, there was a uh, um, doctor, Dr. Steve Play, who became who was our residency director, but uh, he was just an amazing physician. And one thing I learned from him was that you you don't have to know everything, but you have to know when you don't know something and how to use the resources to figure it out when a patient is coming in. So, you know, you you learn little things early on that stick with you in your career and help 
helps guide you and shape you. And I always say that those people that that taught me, when whenever I touch a patient, it's an extension of their hand as well, um, which is I think is an amazing gift, you know, from someone who teaches you. And then if mm. you can teach someone else that, you know, can pass along that, you know, I think that that's one of the one of the best gifts that you can ever give to anybody and really truly one of the best gifts that's ever been given to me some of the people that you know i've that have been my role models you know in my career you know on the on kind of speaking of connecting you you told us um in your recent story that you uh you really make a point of listening to each patient and connecting with them and learning about their interests and their passions it's maybe not always something um patients experience in the medical world so why is that important to you uh, I think it's mainly because I've been on the other side of the bed. Um, you know, I my father was a dialysis patient for seven years, and um, you know, I was the I was the family member that sat on the other side that was nervous, that was scared. And even though I was in the medical field, you know, and I would watch the way that he would be treated at times. Um, you know, to watch the way that sometimes physicians would walk into a room and and you really kind of ignore me or, or not introduce themselves. And, um, you know, that kind of always stuck with me that, you know, I never would want to, you know, be like that and have a patient or a family member look at me in that way. So, you know, I, I've, I always make a conscious effort to, you know, when I walk into a room to not only introduce myself to a patient, but everybody that's in the room, the family members, if there's children in the room, I try to, you know, give them a little, fist bump, you know, little things like that, that just can make a difference. And, and, you know, you have a very short period of time in emergency medicine to gain someone's trust. Um, you know, and it, a lot of that trust is how you first present yourself when you walk into that room. Um, and, and how, the, you know, cause you're making life and death, death decisions many times with these people and have to give people either good news or give them really bad news. And, and, you know, it's that first moment though, that first touch makes a, makes a huge difference in how that rest of the interaction is going to be. It's got to be gratifying. I would suppose to, to that you're, you're often seeing people during possibly the worst moment of their life, or at least a, one of the more challenging moments of their lives and be able to, to make a difference in that way. So again, you know, challenging, maybe tough sometimes, but probably gratifying as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I look at it, it it's really just, I always tell people it's just, it's just a job. I just spent a lot of years reading books and went into a lot of debt in medical school. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of, you know, I look at it, it's just the job as anything else, but, but when you do step back, you know, that, you know, I've had patients that I've be that that later in time have kept in touch with me because of, you know, the interactions that we've had. Yeah, um, you know, and um, I've I had one patient that I diagnosed with a with a kidney stone, but he also had metastatic cancer as well, and um, he went through therapy and chemotherapy, and he's ten years out from his treatment. But every year on the night before Thanksgiving, when we first met he reaches out to me and sends me a message wow. um, thanking me for, for, you know, helping him, diagnosing him and putting him on that path towards, towards getting better. So, you know, little things like that, you know, you, that's worth more than money. Um, you know, when you get some type of interaction, you know, I've had, um, I had to deliver a baby one night um, 
you know, when there was no uh, OB doctor available, they were in the OR. Um, this was when I was working at Harrington Hospital, and um, and it was kind of funny because the the mother said, "I bet you haven't done this in a while." I was like, "No, I haven't done this in about thirteen years." So. <laughs> You know, but you have that background, that basic medical background that you go back to and, and pull out and, and you know, you go to and, you know, I delivered a, a little baby girl, you know, right before Christmas. And that was one of the best Christmas presents I could ever receive. <laughs> and and the mom has given me a gift back in that, uh, you know, we're actually friends on Facebook and I'm able to watch. I'm watching her grow up, which is a really cool thing. Um, you know, so interactions like that are just have become really important to me over time. You're listening to Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West and sponsored by People's Bank. We're talking today with Dr. Mark Kenton, Chief of Emergency Medicine at Mercy Medical Center. Um, I learned recently that your your interests and your passions in medicine have taken you kind of outside um, the job setting, even to the state and, and a national stage. Uh, for example, you took on the uh, the CEO of a pharmaceutical company over the cost of EpiPens, and you pushed for a bill in Massachusetts that lowered their cost. You've also advocated on a state level for increased protection from workplace violence in hospitals. Um, tell, tell me about those experiences and maybe others I might be missing and, and why you feel that you can use your platform for a positive change in that way. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. My We were on vacation in Hawaii and my oldest son would only eat uh, peanut butter. That was it. And my youngest son was about a year old at the time and, and, and grabbed one of his sandwiches and broke out in a diffuse rash. And my wife, Lisa, who's a, a physician um, as well, um, we both looked at each other and like, oh, there's got to be a peanut allergy. So we, contact, we contacted our pediatrician. He called in a prescription for an EpiPen and went to the pharmacy to pick it up. And they said, well, we don't take your insurance. It's going to be $600. And I said, what, $600? Mike, it's epinephrine. It costs pennies, if that. And they were actually really nice and they found another pharmacy on the island, which is not very big. And I drove to it and my insurance covered it for $15. And I didn't think much about it at that time until I think it was about two months later when the news broke about um, the CEO of, of Mylan and, and she was making $18 million a year and the cost of uh, EpiPens was skyrocketing and people couldn't afford it. And I, I happened to have two patients in one night that needed uh, an EpiPen for anaphylactic reactions. And when I prescribed the, the EpiPens to him to go home, the first thought in my mind was these people, they don't have insurance. They're never going to be able to pay for this medication. Yep. And this is a life-saving medication that, you know, at the most with the, with the, the, the needle device costs maybe, maybe $15 to make. Um, and I went home that night and really kind of out of anger and frustration, I wrote a letter to the CEO of Milan on Facebook and it went viral. Um, um, and it ended up being shared, I think 25,000 times, but the one person that, that, that took a hold of it, you know, actually put it on their website and was had over a million views there. And it just, it took off nationwide, which was a pretty amazing thing. And I had a lot of families reaching out to me and, and, and thanking me. And then, and then it ended up with written testimony to Congress when they were interviewing Heather Brash, who was the CEO, which um, which was I, I couldn't believe it kind of made it to that level. Mm. Um, now, the um, um, what ended up happening um, was about six months later, Senator Eric Lesser um, actually read my um, 
the letter on the floor of the state Senate. And the goal that he, what he was trying to do was to uh, create a bill that would allow EpiPens to be purchased um, similar to Narcan, like at, at, at a lower cost that then, you know, municipalities could then purchase that cost. And, and it ended up getting passed by Governor Baker. So it was, you know, I couldn't believe that it kind of reached that level. It, it was really, truly amazing. So, you know, I kind of quickly learned that the, there's a power to social media that can be both good and bad. You know, there's a lot of bad things about it, too. But you can have some really good things about it, too. And this was one of those things. So I, I was able to kind of, you know, understand how to use it a little bit better. And then... We had um, Elise Wilson, who is an unbelievable advocate for um, safety for staff and nurses in, in hospitals, who was a good friend of ours and went to work one day and was stabbed by a patient um, and nearly died. Um, she she um, uh, was ended up being a trauma and um, was able to get into the trauma room, but um, you know, she nearly died from from this unbelievable, horrible attack. And I was working in the ER later on that day. And I actually would have been scheduled for the morning shift, but I had a conflict and couldn't do it and had to switch into a three o'clock shift and kept thinking that the only reason that she was stabbed is because that was the first person that he saw. So it could have been anybody working in, in, in the emergency department at that time. There was really no good safety measures there either. And um, I ended up testifying at the state level for that to increase safety measures to try to mandate that every hospital would have metal detectors, which both Harrington and UMass now have. Um, but the, it never really got beyond that initial committee, which was unfortunate. What's it like um, working in an emergency room setting today, and how has that environment evolved over the years? I know I'm kind of thinking of uh, things like wait times and patient flow and, uh, and just um how how has it changed it's it's been dramatic between pre-covid covid and then post-covid um you had um you know pre-covid you had you had staff you had you would have wait times you know that would be high but you constantly were looking at how to fix that throughput and and move people along and where the barriers were um and then when covid hit um you know Everybody did what they were supposed to do and stayed home, except that the stroke stayed home and the heart attack stayed home. And we kind of wonder, well, where did where did appendicitis go? Because I didn't see appendicitis for a year. Um, you know, what happened to all these people? And we saw our average volume go from about 220 patients a day down to 75 one day um, during COVID. And pretty much everybody that came in was COVID. And you had to develop different you know, different areas that could be seen. So the kind of the walking wounded, I called them, the ones that weren't really that sick, but just needed testing versus the moderately ill versus the ones that were really sick and needed to be intubated, need to be in the ICU. And most of the time passed away early on. Um, so that was, you know, a, just changing your whole mindset of how you approached everything. You know, you had to, you had to, you know, we became heroes again. And I hated that word because I kind of knew that it might, it potentially could turn on us as well. And it kind of did when the vaccines came out that that became so controversial. But you had during COVID, you had staff and then you had this post-COVID phenomenon where 
you have patients that are slowly coming back to the emergency departments. And there's multiple reasons why people use emergency departments. They don't have primary care physicians. They don't have insurance. And we become that safety net for people to fall on. And the you have patients that are coming back and your volume is starting to go up. But now we don't have the staff to take care of them. We don't have the nurses to take care of them. You know, we were at a shortage pre-COVID of already about 5,000 nurses short um, throughout the state. And then all of a sudden, you have more nurses that have either left um, or retired or, or moved on or people not going into the pre profession. And now our limiting factor is nursing. We don't have enough nurses to move patients through the system. So it's become a real challenge. You know, all the hospitals are competing for the same thing right now. They're competing for that same nurse. Um, you know, and that's 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 the biggest thing that's really changed along the way, you know, with with how we're treating people. Yeah, considering um, um, those challenges and, as you said, the, the the nursing staffing challenges and everything else that's happening, to, to close it out on a positive note, is is there anything that you um, that you love about your job that you haven't mentioned already? I mean, what kind of what kind of gets you up in the morning? Yeah, I think the you know the biggest thing is that you know not every day is positive, and you have to realize that there there's good days and there's bad days, and and um, you know I I. Uh, I, I try to look at the the good things that can come out of experiences. And, you know, I had a first grade teacher, I, I tell this quick story named V Guthrie. And I think about this, this was a, a woman that I had in school 46 years ago, you know, and really one of the most uh, important people of my life. And she taught us about Dr. Albert Schweitzer um, in first grade and really kind of, the biggest impact that she had was she taught about how he always would speak about respect for all life. And that stuck with me, you know, through my entire life. And, and, and Miss Guthrie and I, we were friends for her entire life until she passed away at age 92. And we would see each other every Christmas. And that was one thing that stuck with me is that, you know, you, you have to treat everyone, you know, that everyone has someone that loves them. You know, they have a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, a child, a, you know, someone that loves them. And, you know, you have to remember that behind that person, you know, is, is, is a family, is a story, you know, something else. And, you know, you have the ability to impact not only their life, but the life of the family as well. And that's, that's a gift that's been you really, honestly, I think been been given to me. It's not, you, know, you could say that you've, I've, you know, earned it through studying through medical school, but honestly, it, it to me that's a gift that's been given to me. You know that I've been able to, you know, have this career and be able to, um, you know, have an impact on people in a, in a positive manner. I really appreciate you sharing all that. That's um that's all the time we have for today. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing you again at the Healthcare Hero Celebration Dinner on October 26th. But thank you so much for spending a few minutes with me this morning. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for tuning into Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West, sponsored by People's Bank. I'm Joe Bednar, the editor of Business West, and we'll see you next time.